Let's take it back in time a little bit and imagine you're just a toddler drifting in and out of sleep in the back seat of the family car on a warm summer night. Your mom is behind the wheel, one sister in the front seat, and your other sister snuggled close beside you. Your mom is behind the wheel, one sister in the front seat, and your other sister is snuggled close beside you. You have just spent a jam-packed and exciting afternoon with your family at a friend's house, and now, at around 10 p.m., in the comforting darkness of the the road less traveled, you feel the car gently glide to a stop. You hear your mom open the door, exit the car, and you open your eyes just a crack. Curious to know why you're no longer heading home, anxiety starts to build as you realize that you can't see your source of comfort, and it's just you and your sisters seemingly alone on a deserted back road. The feeling of comfort in the darkness has morphed into a sense of dread. Where did your mom go? And then a loud pop rings out, and screams pierce the night. A white hot pain rips through you as another shot tears through the serene chorus of crickets on an otherwise perfect day. And just as quickly as it all happened, it stops and you slip away from consciousness as your mom rushes you to the hospital. Or at least that's what you're told to remember. But as you lay recovering in the hospital, true flashes from that devastating night burst behind your eyelids and you're hoping beyond reason that it was all just a dream and that you didn't actually witness your mother attempting to annihilate you and your siblings for reasons you may never understand. Hello all and welcome to Creeps and Creeps. I'm your host, Cece Delaney, and today we're going to be discussing the terrifying monster that is Diane Downs. But first, if you're new here, welcome. I hope that by the end of this episode, you like the content enough to subscribe on YouTube or wherever you're streaming our podcasts right now and are compelled to leave a like or a review. I'm trying to build a communicative creepy crew around these parts, so any questions, comments, concerns, they're all welcome and encouraged in the comment section on YouTube or the related Instagram post at Creeps and Creeps Podcast. Now let's get started. Elizabeth Diane Downs was born August 7th, 1955 in Phoenix, Arizona to teen parents Wesley Linden and Willie. Engel Fredrickson. Diane said that her parents were teen parents and because of this they were unable to give her the love that she needed and she was also super adverse to her father's lectures and strict rules and how little positive attention he gave her because her parents were a little too busy hanging out together. She said quote he spent way too much time with my mom and my mom spent no time with me unquote. By the time she was a school student Diane was considered bright but not one of the in crowd. Due to her conservative old-time Baptist parents rules Diane was resigned to what she felt were dowdy clothes, and her parents forbade trendy clothing or fads, resulting in their daughter being considered a loser. But in a sudden shift when Diane turned 13, she was all of a sudden allowed to enroll in a charm school. She thrived in charm school and soaked up all of the fashion and makeup tips and emerged as a quote-unquote new Diane with her otherwise mousy brown hair bleached blonde and cut fashionably in new trendy clothing. And the local boys, they began to notice. Diane ate up all of this attention that she never felt that she got as a child. So during her high school career at Moon Valley High School, now she's pretty and she's hot. And she met her husband, Steve Downs. After high school, they parted ways for a little while, and she enrolled at Pacific Coast Baptist Bible College in Orange, California. Meanwhile, Steve went on to serve our country in the Navy. Diane was quickly expelled from the school after only about a year for promiscuity, while Stephen was still off serving, and so Diane decided it was probably a good time to return to her parents' house in Arizona. Eventually, Steve came home from his service, and on November 13th, 1973, Diane and Stephen were officially married. So, according 
According to outside perspectives, it looks like Diane and Stephen had a really good relationship. Like they were attached at the hip, laughy, smiley, jokey, whatever. But it turns out behind closed doors, Diane described Stephen as being as dominating as her father. And from the beginning, the marriage was at best shaky. Diane simply wanted love and realized a little too late that Steve was not that love. She found solace when she became pregnant and realized that carrying a baby made her feel for what she said was the first time that she was actually in charge of a love that was all dependent on her. She said it was a feeling of power she had never felt and she relished in the delight that she was the helmswoman of her own path to total love. That being said, their first child, Christiane, was born in 1974 and she was over the moon and described Christy as the quote, first good friend, unquote, she ever had and said that Christy was the first person that really, really just plain loved her. Once the initial attention from Christy wore off, it was back to serving Steve as meals, never mind that she now had a baby to care for and worked part-time at a local thrift store as well. Obviously, the attention from being pregnant was just a little too sweet for her to get past, so for the second time, Diane Downs fell pregnant and Cheryl Lynn followed in 1976. Diane did not have the same love for her for some fucked up reason. She described Cheryl Lynn as being a quote-unquote colicky child and it was obvious to everybody in Diane's inner circle that she favored her firstborn, Christiane. Because Diane felt that Stephen was so abusive, between 1976 and 1977, Diane kind of had a habit of taking the kids and running away from Steve, but she always came back be it of her own volition or because he found her. Steve would hunt her down at one of her many friends or family's houses, but once reunited, the cycle of abuse would obviously restart. He was unhappy, she was unhappy, but the marriage unfortunately waned on. By the time that 1977 rolled around, the family had moved to Mesa, Arizona, where both Diane and Steve worked for the same mobile home manufacturer. By this point in their lives, Steve had decided that two kids were more than enough and he got a vasectomy. However, Diane decided that enough was not enough and she figured that she could just get a baby wherever. It's pretty easy to get pregnant. Her words, not mine. And she thought, "Mm, any baby's a good baby. It doesn't matter who it comes from. So while working the assembly line, Diane had an extramarital affair with her quote unquote stud named Mark Sager, whom she passionately seduced and conceived a baby with. Stephen Daniel, who they nicknamed Danny, was the product of that affair and was born four days after Christmas, 1979. Steve was furious, but even though the child was not his, he accepted the boy as his own and quote-unquote lived with it, which must have felt real good for Danny. However, Diane said that this would bring on the physical abuse and that he would beat her. Finally, enough was enough and the couple divorced in 1980 because Steve was finally fed up with the thought that Danny was the result of an extramarital affair with Diane. Diane moved in with Mark Sager and it was during this time that she began to show a noticeable shift in personality. Diane found her new sense of freedom after her divorce and decided that she also wanted to be free from her kids. Her children were often seen unkempt and appeared malnourished. Diane routinely left Christy in charge of the other two kids when she was only six years old. To put that in perspective, that means that Cheryl Ann would have been about four and Danny would have been about mm, one or two. I'm bad at math. Either way, way too young. Diane preferred to work and stay away from home and throw her kids on any babysitter that she could find. In fact, one sitter relates that even though she didn't know it at the time, foreshadowed tragedy. She talked about how every time Danny would want attention from Diane, he'd get pushed away. And that one time specifically, she caught Cheryl jumping on the bed. And when she told her it wasn't allowed, Cheryl stopped immediately, but sat there and really thought about something. And then out of nowhere, looks at the babysitter and says, 
quote, do you have a gun here? And the babysitter says, well, no. Why? And the girl says, I want to shoot myself. My mom says I'm bad, unquote. I'm not here to blame the babysitter, but also why did she not call the cops? Like, I know it was a different time back then. But call the cops. See something, say something. Diane finally found a full-time position within the U.S. Postal Service in 1981 and was stationed in Chandler, Arizona. It was there that she met Lou Lewiston, a.k.a. Robert Knickerbocker, and fell in love. Just a quick side note, his name alternates throughout reports because they'd maintained his anonymity for him for a while, so they gave him a fake name. So just know that Robert is Lou Lewiston and Lou Lewiston is Robert Knickerbocker. But for once in her life, it was the other party, not Diane, to make the decision when and where the love affair would end. Diane had hyper fixated on this Lou guy for whatever reason, but he really was not that interested in her. And as she had done mentally to her own kids, Lou physically walked out of her life. Although she had several affairs with other coworkers at the post office, she felt more comfortable with quote unquote Nick, as she called him, than with any other man in her life. But because it was an on again, off again relationship, relationship, Diane really was not about that and decided that it was, I guess, time to cut ties with him. And in April 1983, anxious for a new life, Diane moved to Oregon. By that time, her father had become the postmaster in Springfield and Diane saw it as a good time to be a little Nepo baby and move ahead. She said, quote, I have more advantages than most people. My dad's name pulls power, unquote. She hoped that Nick would leave his wife Charlene and join her in Oregon. And that spring, she began writing some pretty unhinged unmailed letters in her diary. On April 21st, 1983, she wrote, quote, I still think of you as my best friend and lover, and you keep telling me to go away and find someone else, unquote. April 29th, she says, quote, it doesn't matter what Charlene says. I'm a little sad that she has convinced you that, that the kids would be a burden because I know it would not be true, unquote. And on May 11th, she said, quote, I have three beautiful children that I love more than anybody else. I think I love them more than you now. Danny says he is my best buddy and I'm his best buddy. He always gives me kisses and hugs. Every morning when I go to work, he waves and says, bye mom, pick me up after work. I love you, unquote. A lot of people do speculate that this entry was a little bit of foreshadowing and kind of her having some foreshadowing sight into what her plans were and maybe trying to cover her tracks a little bit, which to me just screams premeditation. It was around that time that Diane started to crave the attention that the babies had given her once again, so she decided that it was high time to become a surrogate. She had tried to become a surrogate multiple times, but had failed because the psychiatric tests indicated signs of psychosis. But eventually, she was able to find a psychiatrist who said, yeah, okay, that's fine, go ahead. And she got pregnant. She said, quote, I was so happy. It was the most stable time in my whole life. I had a purpose for being here, and that has been my whole hang-up since I was a little kid. Why am I here? Just so my dad can yell at me? So my husband can criticize me? Just to take care of my kids? But these people needed me. It made me somebody. I told the parents that the baby did more for me than I ever did for them, unquote. Honestly, so telling of her, too. The part about just to take care of my kids? Like, yes, ma'am, if you're having kids, you should probably take care of them. They're not just a little cute chihuahua purse accessory. On May 8th, 1982... Diane gave birth to a daughter whom she named Jennifer before relinquishing her parental rights. Diane was still going strong with her diary at this point, and she now had new fodder to write to. And she wrote a letter to Jennifer, shocking, in which she said, quote, Hello, baby. 
How was your life? I think about you often and wonder what goes on with you week by week. Did you know that today is Mother's Day as well as your birthday? You and your mommy must be having a really big celebration. I don't know exactly what to say to you, Jenny, so I'll just say what's on my mind. Don't give yourself and your love to anyone unless you are sure they are worthy. And when heartbreak comes, don't try to chase it away. It can't be done. Accept the pain and learn from it. A wonderful man once told me that if something was worth waiting for, then wait for it. I believe in my love, and you should too. Good by Jennifer. I love you, unquote. At this point, Diane is still living in Oregon, but she had moved to Cottage Grove and was still obsessing over Nick. And in one of her many unmailed letters, she wrote, quote, you know, I don't want a daddy for my kids. You would never be left alone with them, unquote, which is just such a weird thing to say. Don't say that. On May 19th, 1983, Diane and her three children went to a friend of Diane's and hung out into the evening. Diane left sometime around 10 p.m. And as she was driving home, she decided that she wanted to take a back road just to explore, so they turned down Old Mohawk Road. She said that she'd been driving for a little while when she says she came to a small bend in the road. She says as she went around the corner, she saw a shaggy-haired stranger that was flagging down her 1993 Nissan Pulsar. She stopped, got out of the car, and asked him if he could help, to which his response was, I want your car, and she just said, you've got to be kidding. When she refused, he turned a gun on her and the three children. Cheryl, who was in the front seat, was shot twice, once in the heart and lungs. Christy was shot twice in the chest and Danny once in the back, which I always find just a little suspicious because how was he shot in the back if he was in the car? But it wasn't in the front. Diane, my love, what are you doing? For Diane's part, she was shot in her left arm. She said, quote, I felt I was in a nightmare. It's one of those things where you want to do something. You know, you should do something, but you're not there, really, unquote. She said that she pretended to throw her keys into the field next to her, got back into her car, and then sped to the hospital. This is contrary to a witness report that came forward and said that he got stuck behind Diane, and he alleged that he couldn't have been going more than five miles an hour and got so annoyed at how slow Diane was going that he ended up just going around her. Now, when the three kids were brought to the Mackenzie Willamette Hospital, the scene was, quote, an emergency physician's nightmare, unquote, in the words of John McKay, who was the doctor in charge that night. Both hospital workers and police have testified that Johns was unusually controlled under the circumstances, with Mackey saying, quote, what I observed was a woman who was very calm, very self-assured, not tearful, not angry, occasionally smiling, occasionally chuckling. I saw a woman who appeared to be in very good control of herself. Unfortunately, Cheryl Lynn was beyond saving and she was pronounced dead at the hospital, but that didn't stop Dr. Wilhite from getting to work immediately on saving Christy and Danny's life. Dr. Wilhite saw Christy and just immediately assumed that she was dead like her sister, but luckily he was able to save her life and was so excited to go and tell Diane, but her response really threw him off. He said of the experience, quote, not one tear. You know, she just asked, how is she doing? Not one emotional reaction. She would say things to me like, boy, this has really spoiled my vacation. And she also said, that ruined my new car. I got blood all over the back of it. I knew within 30 minutes of talking with that woman that she was guilty, unquote. But Don's mother contradicts this and she says that her daughter was quote unquote hysterical that night. She was saying that Diane was crying when she walked in, said I can't live without my kids, just sobbing and blubbering and being a mess. Regardless, the police were obviously involved and they quickly stepped in to help identify the murderer. Naturally, because Diane was the closest to the children, they started questioning her and because she was a witness and she lied at that moment and said that she didn't own a gun, but later a search warrant revealed otherwise. 
police also found her diary while they were searching her house, which was filled with references to Nick and his hesitancy about their relationship, as well as that note that says, you don't have to be a dad to my kids. And that witness who saw her driving super slow after the shooting also came forward and furthered suspicions, which led to her arrest on February 28th, 1984. Another really weird thing that she did is at one point she had to be interviewed and recount what had happened during the shooting. And as she was getting out of the car, she accidentally hit her cast on the door. Meanwhile, by the way, she was just laughing and having a good old time. You can see her in the background primping herself in the car. It was just a hot mess express. And as she hits her arm, she goes, ow, that almost hurt as bad as ha 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 and just trails off. So a lot of people speculate she was going to say that almost hurt as bad as when I shot myself, but you know, the world may never know. Anyway, all of this led to her being arrested on February 28th, 1984. Things would go from bad to worse for Diane, who saw a slight glimmer of hope that she may actually get away with this when Christy regained her speech. Mind you, leading up to this, it had taken months of therapy for Christy to trust her therapist enough to tell on her mom. The therapist had Christy write down who was the shooter, and in order to gain Christy's trust, they would immediately burn the note. That way Christy could see that the therapist wasn't going to immediately go and like rat out her response. One day, Christy found the courage to reply when the therapist asked who shot her and simply said, my mom, slamming the final nail in the coffin for Diane. On May 8th, 1984, Diane was charged officially with the murder of her own child, Cheryl Lynn Downs, who was seven, in the attempted murder and first-degree assault of her other two children, Christiane Downs, nine, and Stephen Daniel Downs, four. Obviously, it's Diane, and she's gonna go ahead and plead not guilty. It was actually from day one that investigators were like, what the hell is wrong with this lady? Because her suspicious behavior at the hospital was just completely out of pocket, unacceptable, and people are like, what are you doing? Especially investigators. However, Diane's lawyer explained that, that the coolness Diane showed toward hospital workers was basically conditioned to her in childhood by her father because he forced her to severely control her emotions. And she said that she really was never able to cry. Ever the dramatic one, Diane showed up to court heavily pregnant, but luckily the judge saw right through that. No one felt bad for her. And he said, yeah, no, that's not your kid and you will not be keeping it. And so the second the baby was was born, it was taken away, fortunately. It's really unclear as to who got her pregnant before she got arrested and showed up to her trial, and she has never publicized it, and neither has the guy. And you know what? Here's to hoping that if anyone does a 23andMe and figures it out, you don't rat it out either, because I'm sure that if they wanted it out, they would have said something. Please just chill. Speaking of babies, during the trial, the prosecution and defense were trying to use the surrogate mother twist to their advantage. The prosecutor, Fred Hughey, implies that only a callous woman would give up their child for money, while the defense lawyer, Jim Jagger, argued that the surrogate motherhood was much more important to Diane than the married man the prosecution told the jury she was obsessed with, to the point of killing her children, that she felt that he didn't want. Uh, pause. <laughs> One second. I would like to just go ahead and say that Fred Hughie's being a little bitch here. I don't agree that most surrogacies are for mothers to just get money. Like, I'm sorry, but have you ever been pregnant nine months with a baby destroying you from the inside out, sir? Anyway, that's just my opinion. Obviously, everyone's entitled to their own opinion. I'm sure there are people out there who are like, no, it's for money and whatever. Do what you want. I'm just saying that I personally do not agree with Fred. Normally, I don't state my opinions, but I'm doing it today. What also kind of led credence to Jagger's argument that Diane wasn't a super emotional person was when on stand in front of God and everyone, she talked about her allegedly abusive childhood without any sort of emotion. This part's pretty upsetting in my opinion because they kind of like gas 
gaslit poor Christy and told her, nah, you didn't see that when she got on the stand and was brave enough to testify against her own mother. And she's sobbing on the stand, recounting this traumatic night. And Jagger goes, um... She actually saw Diane through the rear window and she didn't see the suspect. So I think she was actually just, I don't know, dreaming or misremembering. And poor Christy just watched her sister die and her brother get paralyzed from the waist down. But that's neither here nor there. But like, keep in mind that there was no shaggy haired stranger who has ever been found. Another problem that the defense faced is that Nick testified that he saw a 22 caliber pistol in Diane's trunk the night before she left Arizona for Oregon. But Diane tried to say that she gave the pistol to her ex-husband, but a crime lab report used by prosecution found that the 22 caliber bullet casings retrieved at the shooting site and the 22 caliber cartridges found in the rifle at Diane's apartment basically were all worked through the same gun. There's a lot that happened at trial. This one is very dramatic. And if you guys are interested, I can make a, just a trial breakdown at some point. But for brevity's sake, we're just going to keep this train moving and we're going to go into Diane's prison era. Diane was initially sent to a maximum security prison for women at Oregon Women's Correctional Center. But on July 11th, 1987, Diane managed to scale the prison chain link fence while guards weren't paying attention, threw her clothes over the top to protect her from the barbed wire, and landed safely on the other side and made her way to the home of a man named Wayne Seifer whose wife was also an inmate and happened to be friends with Diane. At the time, Wayne was addicted to heroin and basically living on the edge. And when Diane showed up and asked if she could stay, he was like, yeah, okay, for sure. And they actually entered into a brief sexual relationship. The police are obviously kind of shitting bricks at this point, And a guy named Lauren Larry Glover, who was a former Oregon State Police detective, was worried that Diane was potentially going after her children to kidnap or hurt one of them or Jennifer or the other baby she had to give up. Like there were quite a few possibilities. So time is of the essence in this case. Glover immediately tore apart Diane's gel cell and found clothes, a map of Mexico, and some stationery. The paper itself was blank, but when Larry turned it in a particular way, you know how you can kind of see the indentation of the map? He noticed that. And he sent it to the FBI, who quickly created a photostatic copy. This paper was a map that had a line drawn from the prison to a house with an address written on it, which ended up being Wayne's home. The police raided Wayne's house while he was out of town with family, and Diane just so happened to still be there. And she had the bright idea to grab a BB gun and attempted to induce a suicide by cop scenario, but ultimately gave up and went willingly. Again, the dramatics with this one. Diane received an additional five years tacked on top of her sentence and Wayne got five years probation and six months in a restitution center in Salem, Oregon. Diane is currently serving her sentence of life plus 50 years at Central California's Women Facility in Tortilla, California, where she's been since August of 1993. She's also spent years trying to get out of prison on parole by saying that basically, I want to be with my parents because I love them and also they're dying and no one's going to take care of them. Boo-hoo, let me out. Has not worked. Thank God. It's really funny, actually, though. You guys should go watch the hearings that she had in order to get out on probation because every single time a judge is like, but didn't you, like, lie and change your story about a thousand times? And she's like, yeah, but... So it's kind of fun. I don't know. Just go watch it. It makes me laugh every time. If you guys were interested in this case and kind of like the more high-profile cases and want me to cover another one, please leave it in the comments on YouTube. 
or on the related Instagram post at Creeps and Creeps Podcast. I do read all of my comments, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the constructive, so please don't be afraid to voice your opinions. But that being said, don't be dickheads to each other in the comments. As always, you can have your opinion, but so can Mike and Jessica and Janet, and we don't need to all share the same one, because how boring would life be? If you're streaming this as a podcast, please consider throwing a rating my way, with five stars obviously being the most helpful, and subscribing to the show wherever you're listening. You can email me directly at creepsx2 at gmail.com or dm me on instagram at creeps and creeps podcast if you want to suggest a case or just shoot the shit if you're ever curious about my sources they will be linked in the show notes so you can sift through those if you want i also have a blog post dedicated to this episode over on creepsandcreeps.com that i will also be linking my sources in until next time keep those little noggins on a swivel and please stay safe bye